Welcome to the Art of Mathematics. I'm Carol Jacoby, and joining me today is Lee Kraftchik, who's a lawyer, specifically a labor arbitrator. And you might wonder why a lawyer on a show about mathematics. Well, he contacted me to question my statement that I apparently made that math may not be very useful in fields like law. And then he said something about maybe searching for the basic principles of law would reach some sort of Gödelian limit. And I got really impressed there. So I had to have him on the show. So here he is. Welcome to the show, Lee. Thank you, Carol. And thank you for inviting me. I wasn't planning on being on the show. I'm just a big fan and I enjoy your podcast. And I had some thoughts about just some issues that came up from my own background, studying mathematics some 50 years ago in undergraduate school. So uh, pardon me if my math is a little rusty. But you do have an undergraduate degree in math, which I assume is very unusual for a lawyer. When you invited me to the show, it occurred to me, how many lawyers do I know that have math degrees? And uh, when I was in law school, there were some 300 uh, students, and I think I only knew one other who had a math degree. And so I, then I looked online, and I said, well, well, how unusual is this? And it turns out that there's maybe, of all the lawyers out there, there's something under half a percent to one percent. Most lawyers uh, study in undergraduate school uh, either political science or economics or history, but math doesn't seem to be a field that is uh, regularly a background for law. That's not to say there's a, a rarity of them, but it's just not a, a great number. Does studying math help you in the practice of law? Have you found it helps you? I certainly have. My colleagues would kid me all the time that said, well, you know, if I was any good at math, I would have gone to uh, medical school. But that's not what I found. Uh, I found that there's a lot of times where math comes in very, very handy. First is directly. There's a lot of legal issues that involve the use of statistics as a, a good example. There's also ones involving economics, accounting, other numerical type fields. But what I used it for in my practice, since I was a, a labor and employment lawyer, I used it most frequently in uh, employment discrimination cases, usually on the defense side, but I was also on the affirmative side in the sense that I was defending affirmative action plans. And when you're defending an affirmative action plan, you have to show that there truly is a history of discrimination that warrants such a plan. You can't just start saying, I'm going to hire a bunch of minorities because you think you're a little short or you think uh, that's a generally good idea. In order for it to pass legal muster, you have to show that you have a very strong basis and evidence to support such a plan because obviously any such plan does have an impact on non-minorities. Uh, anytime you hire a minority through an affirmative action plan, that's one less person from the other groups that can get hired. So we had a number of cases over the years where we would get challenges from a variety of different groups, mostly uh, white males, who claim that our affirmative action plan, and the one I'm speaking of in particular, is a plan we had for the uh, Miami-Dade County uh, Fire Department. And the fire department, as you is probably common throughout the country, uh, years and years ago, was a very, very isolated group. Uh, there was very few women, if any, very few blacks or Hispanics in the group. It was a very insulated group. And 
over time, uh, people realize this has got to change. So we started an affirmative action plan. And one of the things we did directly with mathematics is use a statistical analysis to show that the underrepresentation of minority groups and women was not just an anomaly. It was a very strong underrepresentation. We used typically a, a regression analysis or a a statistical analysis just to show that it was off the mean. We showed in one case that the uh, p-value you're familiar with was something like seven or eight deviations, indicating that there was chances of a billion, one in a billion, that there was not discrimination. And the courts accepted that. They said that, yeah, that's pretty strong evidence. You've got way more than the typical two to three standard deviations, which tend to show in this usually acceptable as proof in a discrimination case, but you're way beyond even the two to three standard deviations. And that's what enabled us to even get started on the affirmative action plan. Then the next steps are to prove that it's designed in a way that it comes to an end at some point, and that doesn't have an undue impact on uh, too many uh, members of the majority. It's not like you can hire nothing but minority group people. You have to still make room for the majority. So that was the most common thing I used it for in uh, discrimination cases. I also used it in uh, voting rights cases where we were considering uh, redistricting. And in that field, you have to determine how to design different districts within a jurisdiction. And you can imagine how many different possibilities there are. Every time you draw a line, you can draw a line a house over. And each time you draw one of those lines, it affects how many minorities or majority folks are in that district. What the statisticians did with us was, what are you trying to accomplish? We want to balance. We want to divide it up equally. Everybody gets X number of people in a district so that they can all have the same percentage representation. But if you divide it up in certain ways, you exclude minorities in this sense. Uh, let's say we have 10 districts and we have 20% Blacks. So two of the districts should be black. But by drawing lines in a certain way, you can make it just one district black. And sometimes that's a result of just trying to respect uh, natural borders like a river or a, a municipality within an estate. And so allowances are made for those natural jurisdictions. But that limitation only goes so far. You can't draw it in such a way that you end up with what uh, looks like serpentine waves. So you're drawing a line that's way wavy and stuff, and then you can it looks obvious that you're excluding certain groups. And the Supreme Court has developed this whole uh, detailed way of deciding whether a plan is uh, discriminatory or not. And normally, uh, they defer to the state that uh, makes the decision. But most recently, in Alabama, there was a, a case that the Supreme Court decided that where the a state designed a plan that only had one what's called a minority-majority district, a majority-minority, meaning that that district is comprised of minorities, but they're the majority of that district. And what the court found was that it was thoroughly possible to design a system in Alabama that created two districts for House of Representatives that were uh, majority Black. But the state drew lines that left only one district. And the state defended it saying, well, it was too difficult to draw it any other way. Well, the statistician weighed in. And what was interesting about it from a mathematical perspective was 
there was one analysis that showed that of 2 million possible districts, you can imagine the differences in the districts. If you could shift it a house over this way or a house over that way, you have trillions and trillions of possibilities. Well, one analysis showed that of 2 million possible districts, none produced two black districts. That's what the state said. Well, the response was, well, you've only taken 2 million. That sounds like a lot. But if the possibilities are in the trillions of trillions, 2 million isn't much at all. And that's what the Supreme Court said when they threw out the state of Alabama's argument. They actually said something to the effect of, it's not just trillions of trillions, it may be Google's worth. There are such a large number of possibilities, you can't just pick out 2 million and say, well, okay, that's good enough. It wasn't good enough. And that was nice to see in the Supreme Court because they haven't always been that cognizant of mathematics. It's a little troublesome when you look at the courts and sometimes you see stuff that is, I hate to say the word enumerate, it's not that, it's just they may not be fully informed of the mathematics. It's not just the judges because the judges depend on the input they receive from the the lawyers and the experts who speak to them. If you don't put on a good case, they may overlook something and then somebody looks at it a year later and says, well, why didn't you look at this? Well, I didn't look at it because nobody presented it to me. And that was an instances of some of the voting rights cases like that. And the same thing happened in the, going back to the affirmative action case that I tried, one of the things that the court pointed out in the holding the plan was that although the people challenging the plan had all kinds of reasons to say it was not valid, that is to say that our numbers were not completely indicative of what the history was, they didn't present their own statistical analysis. So the court said, well, the county, uh, my client, presented a, a compelling case and you haven't criticized it, but you haven't presented a plan of your own to show that it's uh, not valid. That goes back to the lawyers not presenting to the court what's necessary to make a decision. I don't know if they ever could have presented anything uh, much better than what we presented, but they didn't do it. So that left the court in the position of having to accept one side statistical analysis. And that happens uh, more often than perhaps it should, because the point of the law is to have an adversary process that gives both sides the chance to put in as much information as possible. And then the court has everything in front of it. There's a bunch of other uh, areas where math comes in handy in law, patent uh, litigation, tax cases, stuff that I'm not very familiar with, but uh, it seems obvious that uh, math would be helpful. Here's what I found the most interesting. In an indirect way, math education, math reasoning is very similar to legal reason. And I noticed it first in law school was that we would be asked to analyze a case or uh, write a, a memorandum uh, describing some uh, legal issue. I think some of the students wrote almost from a historical perspective. But what I think the professors were looking for was more of a, an analysis that looks an awful lot like a mathematical proof. That is, you have an issue, then you have a set of facts, then you have an analysis, and then you have a conclusion. And to draw the parallel further with what I learned in undergraduate school, when doing a proof, you start off with, this is what's given, this is what I'm trying to prove, this is the existing mathematical theorems I can work with, and the axioms, 
And then I try and find a way to get from this is what I want to prove, use the axioms, come to a conclusion. And that's very much what you do in law. And not just in law school, but as we write as lawyers, the best part of the law was the writing and the legal arguments. A lot of the rest of this stuff was pretty routine. But when you got into court and you could argue something to an appellate court, strictly the law, it was very interesting and and challenging. And so we write briefs, we call them. They're not really brief, but that's what we call them. What they are is a summary of what the facts are, how the law applies, and what the conclusion you want to reach. If you looked at them and took out uh, some of the more flowery rhetoric in their outline, they look an awful lot like a mathematical proof, at least to me. And that's certainly the way I I wrote. And maybe I didn't do it consciously all the time, but in the back of my mind, I, I was always thinking, how do I take this issue? And the issue was whatever it may be, whether we can establish an affirmative action plan or whether we discriminated against a certain person or not. How do I get from that issue using the law to the conclusion that I want to draw in the affirmative action cases, it would be we have the right to go forward with affirmative action. In a typical discrimination case, it would be as a defendant that we did not discriminate against this person. And there's all kinds of law in between that says these are the standards that you must apply to reach one of those conclusions. So you start with the facts, you take the case law and the statutes as the axioms and theorems, so to speak. And that's how you reach the conclusion, which sometimes we would end with QED, quote, error, just like you would do in mathematics. I tried to hesitate from doing that because it does look a little obnoxious sometimes when you're trying to argue to a court to tell them that uh, I've already demonstrated it. You don't need to think about it. So you need to have a little humility in the law because you're arguing to somebody else. It really does sound a lot like a mathematical proof. I'm I'm surprised. I didn't expect that, but it's it, it it's really remarkably does, similar. It does work that way to me. And I think most lawyers, when they think about it, had they done proofs in, in undergraduate school, they might be thinking the same thing. And I suspect many uh, lawyers who are mathematicians probably have the same thoughts. Unfortunately, there's not enough of us. <laughs> I suspect it's more common to hear a lawyer say, I was not good at math. That's why I went to law school. And and let me just, I I can't help but give you a couple of quotes about lawyers. There's a stereotype that we're all bad at mathematics. And you wonder, I I start to wonder, where, where did that come from? It turns out it comes from lawyers. Here's just a couple of quotes I thought were a little bit telling. One is from no less than the chief justice. He said, I think there are a lot of people who go to law school because they are not good at math and can't think of anything else to do. That's a quote from our own Supreme Court justice. It's a little troublesome that you can say that out loud, that the people before you and you yourself as the chief justice are not that good at math. And here's another one from Michelle Obama. And she was kidding around, but uh, there's some underlying truth. She says, I know for me, I'm a lawyer because I was bad at science and math. All the lawyers in the room, you know it's true. We can't add and subtract, so we argue. And I know there's a little bit of truth to it because some of my very best friends are 
folks who wanted to go to medical school and didn't do well in, in organic chemistry or some other pure science. And so they ended up in law school. And the other thing that's troublesome about it to me is that it seems okay to say that you're bad at math. It's a very common thing to hear somebody say, you know, you're 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 just at a at a dinner and you you somebody has to do the tip and they say, well, I'm bad at math, so I can't do that. They always turn to me to get the tip. My practice is just to over tip, and I don't even have to worry about adding it up. But people say that all the time. I'm just not good at math. But you never hear somebody say, I'm just not good at reading. That that would just sound stupid. But to say I'm not good at math seems to be acceptable. I don't think people who say it really think it through that way, but that is not uncommon. Almost sounds like a badge of honor among many people. Oh, I'm no good at math. It's a way of saying, oh, I'm too creative or something. I don't understand it. Right. It's like dismissing that. It's not that I I couldn't do it if I, I really wanted to, but it's not interesting or it's not important. And it's a shame because I think part of that is a result of our educational system that never, or at least in some places, doesn't get a chance to show people the beautiful side of mathematics, the elegant side of it. That's um, right. I was very lucky. I had some very good math teachers. I, and I was thinking about them today. I actually remember my some of the names of my math teachers from high school. I don't remember names of many other teachers. I, I remember one was Wanda Taylor, one was Miss Cox, and one was uh, Joe Fernandez. And Mr. Fernandez, he, he went on to become the superintendent of Miami-Dade County Schools and then a superintendent, I think it was in California. He was a brilliant man and a tremendous math teacher. You know, and he taught, I think I took him from algebra too, which is a pretty dry subject when you think about it, but he somehow got us interested. Mrs. Cox was my geometry teacher and geometry is the one where you have to grab their interest because that's where there's some real proofs that are simple enough to understand, but beautiful. They truly are the, you know, the simple proofs of, uh, of the Pythagorean theorem or, or a proof that, uh, two sides of an angle, wh- whatever it may be. It's a, you know, I can't think of them all off my hand, but the notion uh, uh, that you can prove a geometric proof in, you know, a few steps. And then at the end, you say, Oh my goodness, look at that. Of course it follows. And when you can see it step by step and then you do one yourself and you say, look at what I created there. Wow. That was something. And, I feel bad that some people never seem to have had that chance to see the beauty of it. I think part of it also is if you're not lucky enough to get a few good teachers, you'll never get the interest enough to get to the point where you could see the beauty of it. And I I think certainly in uh, some of the drier ones, uh, let's say calculus. Calculus is beautiful in its own way because of what it does for the sciences. And it's, it's, it's indispensable. But it's also difficult for somebody who doesn't have a ready grasp of of numbers. And it doesn't have quite, and this is just based on vague memories, it doesn't have quite the beauty of the next uh, few things you learn in uh, undergraduate school. When you start going into set theory and group theory and uh, these other more, so to speak, abstract areas, and you see proofs being put together, it's incredible. Well, thank you very much, Lee. I love talking to you. Thank you very much. Bye. We'd love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like to share on the air or a suggestion for a guest for a future show, leave a message at anchor.fm slash the art of mathematics. 
with hyphens, or email me at cjacobi at jacobiconsulting.com. And if you'd like to learn how to get answers from data, check out my class at excelfordecisionmakers.com. See you next month. Thanks for listening. Thank you.